Most tattoos tell a story. Ask somebody about their tattoo, wherever it might be, and you're likely to learn about some things that are very important to them. Well, Sanjana grew up in a Muslim household in Egypt, and when she was 13 years old, she was given a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, which she hid in a hole to hide from her family. But she would read it, and she began to believe the things it was saying about Jesus and, and realizing her need for a Savior, and she put her faith in Christ. And when she did that, she decided to do two things. The first thing she did was she decided to get a tattoo of a cross. See, in Egypt, there's a long history of persecution of Christians. And the churches there are very wary of false converts coming into their churches and infiltrating their ranks and finding out about who they are and then reporting them to authorities or persecution. And so one of the ways that they know whether someone is a false or true convert is to get a tattoo of a cross. Because no Muslim would do that. So she got that. But then the other thing that she did was she told her father, who was enraged by her new faith, and began to beat her. And for three years he kept her locked in a room half-starved, continually beaten. He poured acid on her arm to try to get rid of the tattoo. He allowed the local imam to come to visit her, to preach at her, and to assault her when she wouldn't change. Eventually, he made her marry a Muslim man uh, who kept her locked in their apartment. And when she continually refused to renounce her faith in Christ, he divorced her and sent her off into the street penniless. While homeless, she was taken in by Christians and baptized into the church. And today, Sanjana serves in her local church. She refuses to be bitter about the persecution, the suffering that she received. She told uh, recently the voice of the martyrs, she said, God gave me a promise, and I trust his promise. God is always good. Now, how is it that someone can make it through that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution, and come out on the other side with any measure of joy. And the only answer is that they have to believe that this is not the only life that there is. That they are trusting not in some pie-in-the-sky hopeful spirituality, but in the reality of heaven the reality of a God who loves them. In Revelation 7, we get a glimpse, another glimpse in this great book of the throne room of God and the multitudes who are gathered around it. In this picture of the throne room, we're going to learn about how the kingdom of God operates, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, uh, both then and now. And so if you are able, please stand For this reading of God's Word, it's Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Revelation 7 is a picture of what heaven looks like right now. It is the place where God is and where believers, the saints who have gone before us, are. But in some ways, it is, this is a temporary situation. It's weird to say that heaven is temporary, but Revelation 21, the end of the story, tells us that at the second coming of Christ, that heaven will come down to earth and God will make his dwelling place here in the new heavens and the new earth and so in some ways that's our ultimate hope but for now we look to this picture as what heaven is like right now and we'll start with the question that your children may have asked maybe probably you've wondered about which is what will heaven be like what will it look like Well, the images of heaven we get here throughout Revelation are all centered around one thing, right? The throne of God. That's interesting because what do most people think is the most interesting aspect of heaven, right? The thing we wonder about the most. My housing situation, right? Right? What kind of house am I going to get up in heaven? Is it going to be a mansion? Is it going to be a little shack? Is it going to be based on the good things that I did, right? Now, I'm not even 100% sure that we're going to have housing like we think of in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. But even if there are houses, mansions, and literal streets of gold and your, all your favorite foods there— Guess what? That is not what is most important about heaven, right? That is not, according to Revelation, the thing that we ought to be most curious and most looking forward to. The focal point of heaven is the throne room of God and the opportunity to be in his presence. Now, most people, I think, think that heaven is where the good people go, right? the nice people, the good people. But here is the key to heaven. And the key to this, what we get from this throne room picture, that if you don't love Jesus, 
you're not going to love heaven. If you are not in love with Jesus, you are, you're not going to want to be in heaven. You're just not. Because it is all about him. He is the only way in, and the spotlight is on him when he is there. You know, people who've lived their entire lives, even if they're good, outwardly good people, but sort of ignoring or even avoiding Jesus, are not all of a sudden, when they die, going to want to be consumed in his presence. Eternity, in some ways, is a continuation of the path that we're following on this earth. Those who are... Those who are pursuing God in his glory in the next life will continue to pursue God in his glory. Those who are pursuing their own happiness, their own glory in the next life will also continue to pursue that. Said another way, if you don't want Jesus now, you won't want him then. And God will give you over to your desires. Give you exactly what you want, life apart from him for all eternity, which will eventually be utter misery. But for those who love Jesus, they will be thrilled to be around him, to be around the throne of God, to be able to sing his praises in his presence. So John shows us this glorious vision. And he gives us a theology lesson as well. This is another instance in Revelation of John hearing one thing and seeing another. Uh, We remember back in chapter 5, Ricky talked about how John hears them talking about the Lion of Judah. But when he turns and looks, he sees what? A lamb. Well, here in Revelation 7... John hears in the first eight verses, which I didn't read, okay? Well, trust me, this is what it says. He hears about a, a number of people who are counted and sealed, right? This idea of sealing, keeping safe in heaven, right? And the number is 144,000 people, and there's a roll call of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? and they're sealed to heaven, And he hears this, but then when he looks in verse 9, what does he see? He doesn't see this, just this small group of people, relatively speaking. He sees a great multitude that no one can count, that no one can number, right? And who are the people that make up this multitude? Not just Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, but all the nations, Every country on earth, right? We're told people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And this is the theology lesson that John is subtly teaching us, that the the plan of God worked. The plan of God worked, right? Because, again, this number, 144,000, it has great significance, because it's, it's three numbers multiplied together, right? A 12, and 12, and a 1,000. So there's 12 tribes of Israel, which represents believers in the Old Testament before Jesus came, 
right? The full number of those believers. And then 12 also represents the church, the 12 apostles. And we see this later in the book of Revelation when it talks about the gates of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. It talks about the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. And that, that represents the full number of believers who've come since Jesus. And a thousand is that number in Revelation that's used for a great multitude. And so put together, those three numbers represent the fullness of all the people that Jesus died to save. And it is a massive number that no one can count, telling us that God's plan has worked, that God's plan is glorious, it is gracious, and it will be fulfilled. Right? And here's what we also learn. We learn that all national ethnic distinctives will ultimately be done away with in heaven. All of God's people will be together as one church. There will be no more doctrinal disputes or political disputes that will divide us. There won't be any sinful pride to make us splinter. There will just be one throne, one table where God's children will sit and where we'll worship that's what it will look like. Now, we might ask the question, why? Why will heaven look like this? Well, because God's image encompasses all people, right? And his desire is to save all different kinds of people everywhere. His plan is for the whole earth, all nations. You know, if you read the Bible well, you find that the Christian faith is actually the greatest argument against racism and prejudice that you will find among any worldview that is out there. In fact, Christianity has four great doctrines that argue against racial prejudice and division. What I would call doctrines of love or doctrines of unity. Let's go through them really quickly. The first doctrine is this, that all people are created equal in God's image. Genesis 1 tells us that God created us in his image, male and female, he created us, right? We somehow look like and even act like God. And that's all people, right? Young, old, male, female, Afghan, Chinese, Russian, Aussies. We are like God in a way that no animal or plant or planet is. And that's why Jesus tells us not to hate our enemy. Right? Because no matter how bad he might be, he is still made in the image of God. And we're called to love him. That's the first doctrine. The second doctrine is this, though. We learn very quickly in Genesis 3 that all people are equally lost. And sinful, right? That the wages ever since Adam and Eve, the wages of sin is death. And all fall short of God's glory. And so every one of us is on equal ground apart from Christ, dead in our sins and trespasses and without hope. This is why the Bible can say that prostitutes and crooks are no different from self-righteous religious people. That's why it says that the, the dutiful older brother is no different from the immoral younger brother. They're both lost just in different ways. 
right? And if we think that because we're American and middle class that we have some advantage in gaining our own salvation, we are more lost than we think. Third doctrine that is in the scripture to unite us, draw us to him, is, is that all people are redeemed, who are redeemed, are equally saved by grace. And look at verse 10. One of the things that the multitudes say around the throne of God is what? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God. God is the one who saves us. He's the one who draws us to Him. He's the one who gives us faith to believe. And if you and I were in control of our own salvation, if we could somehow earn it, we could somehow deserve it, that salvation would belong to us. We'd have, we'd have reason to be prideful, right? And to boast over those who didn't earn their salvation. Say, salvation belongs to me. No. Salvation belongs to our God. And the fourth doctrine of unity is right here in Revelation, that all people who are redeemed will be equally glorified. How beautiful are those words in, in verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve of him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They'll hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Whatever rewards we will get in heaven, and, and rewards are, are real. The Bible does, Jesus does talk about rewards. They will not take away from the fundamental unity of God's people that we will be shepherded by the Lamb. Isn't that a wonderful image? That the Lamb is the shepherd who will make sure that our needs are taken care of, who will make sure that we no longer hunger or thirst, who will dry our tears. The lives of Christians here on earth may be very different, but our destiny is the same. We will be united in glory. So you say, okay, pastor. That may all be true, but so what? That's just, that's just another place, right? I don't really have time to worry about or think about heaven. I just got to get through this week. Right? I'm just trying to survive here on earth. And I know. The interesting thing is, though, that the book of Revelation was written to people who absolutely were trying to survive, right? The early church who were being persecuted, who were being killed for their faith, facing the loss of everything in their lives if they, if they named the name of Christ and refused to worship the emperor. And, and Jesus intends for this book to be an encouragement to them to keep going. And so he gives these pictures of the throne room to keep going. And so the same for us, what heaven's reality means for us now, 
We just we talked about four doctrines of unity, so I want to talk about four practical lessons for us to take away from this vision of the throne room of God. The first thing is this, that our Savior is not a politician. Right? It's human nature for us to look for saviors in this world. You know, we, we think if, if only my person were in the White House, if only my people who cared about my interests were in power, they'd protect my way of life and my financial interests. The part of the Song of the Redeemed is that there is only one Savior. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of living water. So listen, be a good citizen, vote. But don't look for your salvation in a political party or an election. Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven and your salvation comes only from the throne of God. Second practical lesson from this text is that the rich should feel no superiority over the poor. Rich and poor are only distinctions that really exist here on earth. They won't really exist in heaven. And in some ways, they're superficial distinctions anyway, right? What do, we, what do we call our talents and abilities? We call them gifts because they are gifts from God. Every ability you have, every talent you have to be able to earn money was given to you by God. Opportunities you've been given were also given to you by God. There are many reasons for poverty, right? And often the poor have no control over them. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Illness, disasters, access to education and technology. There's, there's such an arrogance in the West uh, among the middle and upper class towards the poor. And yet Jesus tells us that ought, ought not to be so. And he actually seems to indicate it's probably a lot harder to get to heaven if you're rich than if you're poor. Because he says the gospel is good news to the poor, but it's offensive to the rich. And in fact, in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it's the poor man who has to pray for the rich man. So if you're wealthy, give thanks to God for it, but don't confuse it with righteousness third practical lesson that flows from this vision of the throne is that racial prejudices have no place in God's church Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I have a dream speech in the mall in Washington was a call not to abandon Christianity but to a deeper commitment to it he says this he says many Many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They've come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. I have a dream that one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Friends, that's a, that's a dream that is firmly rooted in the reality of heaven. 
in the hope of heaven that all races and people are equal before God, that God will be God and Father to all. And so we ought to be sisters and brothers to all. The fourth and last practical lesson is that God's kingdom should take priority over national pride. Listen again, there's nothing wrong with loving your country, being a good citizen. I encourage you in that. But America is not God's sole favored nation. In fact, there are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in America. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than in the United Kingdom. There are more uh, Christians probably in China than in North America. Places like Korea are sending missionaries to America. We have to have a bigger vision than just America, right? That's why I love to travel. I love to go and worship with the church in Kazakhstan and in New Zealand and in Sweden to, to see brothers and sisters worshiping there and worship with them. And I have to be honest, this might be a little controversial, I don't know. I don't understand why churches fly the American flag, or just one flag. Maybe there's a reason. You can tell me afterwards. But when we come to worship, we are not coming to pledge allegiance to America or to try to save America. We are coming to worship a God who is above all nations, who is the king above all kings, and who unites all people to himself in Christ. As Anthony Esselin says, I belong to the largest and the oldest institution in the world. And when America passes away, as it inevitably will, the church will still stand. When the Amer European Union is but a mad, bad memory, the church will still be there. When her critics have passed into dust, the church will still loom to the heavens as impassive as stone, as faithful as the return of the day.